grab a seat. It's wonderful to be with you today. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and we are going through a series called A Glimpse of Heaven. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout and just follow along with us. We've been talking for these last few weeks about how you and I and everyone you'll ever meet is eternal. Uh, we've talked about how God's plan is not only creation, but recreation. And uh, there, there is a glorified, perfected reality that is um, following this experience we have in this fallen world. And so we've been unpacking that. If this is your very first time, maybe to Overlake or even to church, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, they're talking about heaven, which is, you know, it's non-observable, non-scientific. I mean, sure, it's just all pontification, you know, spiritually speaking. And, and here's the deal. I, we actually don't talk about heaven too often. It's, it's actually kind of a, a rarity to, to give even a week, let alone three weeks in a series to this topic. And it's a little bit of a shame because when you do open the pages of Scripture and you do look at what motivated the followers of Jesus and what was powerfully real to the person of Jesus, you see that heaven is, is, is really one of those motivational uh, encouragements that really give fuel to live the life that we are called to live. And so we've been excited about jumping in. We talked a couple weeks ago about how a glimpse of heaven today is in loving community with one another because heaven is primarily relational. It's primarily a relationship and this intimate relationship of love with God and then perfected relationships with all of our loved ones, all dysfunction gone, all awkwardness gone, insecurity, our unbrokenness gone. So perfected, loving relationships. And we get to practice that now in the here and now. We get to, to see a glimpse of heaven in how we love one another. Last week, we, we unpacked this reality that the Bible is filled with imagery. And, and it's such beautiful imagery. It's such exciting imagery to take a look at. And that imagery actually fuels our biblical imagination, and that allows us to really understand a little bit more about what heaven is going to be like. It, it gets us more excited for looking ahead, and if for some reason this is your first time in this series, and, and you know, you're just hearing this, this topic of heaven for the first time, please join us online, occ.org. Listen to the last two weeks. I would hate for you to have just a, 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 a lopsided view of heaven, right? Just, just only to day because it's just kind of one message that was given over three weeks. And, and even so, just so you know, there's actually more. I had to trim a whole bunch out of this message because, you know, you don't want to be here until 2 p.m. And uh, even though the Seahawks aren't playing, that might be okay on a day like today. But no, nobody really wants that. So the, the whole point is there's just so much about what God has prepared for those who love him. And so I, I just want to invite you to, to join us online, you know, catch up. Let me jump right in. Because if you, you've been tracking with us at all, you know that what God has in store is a, a completely redeemed and glorified universe that we are invited into, and it has implications. So if you're filling in the blanks, the first one is that heaven is abundantly fruitful, abundantly fruitful. And so what I want you to see, and you might want to jot notes in the margins or whatever, but we're talking about abundance and no scarcity. We're talking about complete abundant provision for all of eternity and no poverty, no lack. 
And, and if you have been able to travel around the world or, or maybe you've lived in really difficult circumstances or you've gone to places where uh, famine has ravaged a people or drought has destroyed all kinds of, uh, of you know, crops and maybe you've been to a place where even because of the broken politics and the, and the corruption in government or overlords, uh, you know, owning sort of the, the movement of food, you've seen the, the devastation and the horror that scarcity can, can mean. And that horror will be gone forever. That, that, that's what God promises will be removed for all of eternity. This is what it says in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What a beautiful picture of this river, right, flowing down from the throne. It flowed down the center of the main street in the city, this new Jerusalem. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, look at this, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. So just kind of soak in that imagery for a moment, that the abundance that's presented here, the idea of monthly harvest, the idea of this river of life, the tree of life, the leaves of that tree used to heal the nations. This restored and resurrected reality will be abundantly fruitful. And there's every indication that we will enjoy that fruit and we will enjoy that harvest. And I, I don't know a clear way to say this, but in heaven, foodies will be delighted, okay? Foodies will be delighted. There are lots of images about this. Revelation portrays a great wedding feast. Jesus himself talks about a great banquet. Jesus, when he's resurrected, shares a meal that he prepares himself with his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Here's another verse from Revelation 19. The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You might want to circle the words wedding feast. Wedding feast. And in other words, the imagery is that we will eat and drink and we will enjoy the taste and the fellowship that meals provide, but maybe we won't have to eat. Like, you know, the Bible's not clear about that. Maybe we will simply enjoy meals because of the fellowship. Maybe our bodies won't need the food to be energized or nourished the way that they do now. Maybe there's some other way that our, our bodies in the glorified state will be energized, like photosynthesis for plants, or, or maybe we'll eat, but, but it, you know, we, we don't actually utilize the, the energy for the food. It just kind of evaporates. Or maybe in heaven, Krispy Kremes will actually flatten our abs and give us the eight-pack that the Lord has in mind. The Bible's a little fuzzy about that. As the Bible is a little bit fuzzy about this, will there be stakes in heaven? Right? This is a question I've gotten over the years. Will there be stakes? Because, friends, if you're anything like me, you know, you, you know it just won't really be heaven without stakes. And I, I will tell you that God himself knows how good stakes taste. Right? He's the one who made them. So the answer, I, I think maybe there will be stakes in heaven, just maybe in heaven they'll grow on trees. Maybe the, the, the prime rib tree will be right above the horseradish plant. I, I don't know how that all works, but 
Uh, again, you can find all this in the book of Second Opinions. But what I do know is this, that, that, that uh, heaven has a redeemed natural order. A redeemed natural order, which actually does have implications for all of these thoughts about, you know, being a carnivore in heaven and what do we do with food and all this stuff. Because in heaven, the Bible, it talks about this quite a lot. Many of you are familiar with this already, that there is a redeemed, there there is a restored, a brand new, perfected and glorified natural order. And I do think this is huge. The implications are huge because so many of us already attest that we feel closer to God when we're surrounded by nature. In fact, this is very common. This is one of those kind of common human realities that, that when you're on a beach and you're watching a sunset over a beautiful ocean or when you're in the mountains and you're looking out at a pristine lake or just you know, any one of a million experiences in nature, even if you don't know who God is, even if you don't know who you're being drawn toward, there's so much that comes alive that, that we recognize that we are spiritual and there's more going on than just a pretty picture. And this is a fallen reality that we live in right now. And, I, and, and again, friends, this is one of those topics that we could say, and we are grateful to God that we live here in the Pacific Northwest, that we live in the state of Washington, which is so beautiful, and it's created so wonderfully, and we know that this is God's backyard because he waters it so faithfully. <laughs> And, and so what I want to do right now is I want to, sh- I want to show you a quick video, and it's, it's just a picture. It's, it's not the picture. Obviously, we don't have a picture of what the glorified natural order is going to be, but, but it is a picture, and it gets us thinking about what that restored natural order, that perfected natural order might be like. So go ahead and watch this video. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years, that the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park, and despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. 
bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. just drop some knowledge on you. You're welcome. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's beautiful to think about. And the reason why I want to show the video is just to think about right now in the fallen reality we live in, how complex and dynamic a flourishing ecosystem is. And God's the one who thought all of it up. And God is the one who in eternity will absolutely perfect it and glorify it. And some of you, even when I say that, that, you know, that nature itself will be perfected. Some of you could push back and you say, no, no, I don't agree with that. I think nature's perfect right now. I think it's absolutely perfect. And, and, you know, if we were together having a conversation very lovingly and gently, I would just say, you're wrong. <laughs> because, you, no, no, just think, all, all of nature, it, it, it groans, right? We do. We see the effects of the fall everywhere in, in the law of the, the, you know, the tooth and fang, and we see it in disease, and we see it in, in, in sort of the way that nature can be disrupted, and, 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 you know, I'm sure you can think of examples like this. I was watching a National Geographic special, and uh, hosted, uh, by the way, by Alec Baldwin, who did a great job, narrated that thing, and, and, and there was this wildebeest that was being uh, hunted by a pack of hyenas, and, and the wildebeest had, had run for some time and had gotten really, really tired. And the, the, uh, the hyenas had chased it into a mud hole where the wildebeest had gotten stuck, just planted and stuck in this mud. And the hyenas came up behind the wildebeest and began to consume it while it was still living. 
And, the, and I was watching this, and the whole, I mean, it was like a horror show. And the wildebeest just lowered his head in resignation. And I thought to myself, this is nature groaning. This is that, that, that ruthless picture that heaven says will be gone forever. And in, in fact, you want the biblical words, the, the way in which this is phrased. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says, but with eager hope, the creation, the nature, the natural order looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the, to the present time. And so all of the beauty and majesty of the creation that we currently know and are amazed at, and we are, there's so much that's beautiful, so much that's wonderful, but nature will be restored and reclaimed and glorified as well. The Bible says that the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the, the lion could lay down with the lamb right now, only the lamb wouldn't get any sleep. Uh, but that's not the case in, in heaven. This is what it says in Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, some of you, maybe you're a little bit more biologically minded. You're trying to figure out how this perfected ecosystem might work. And again, obviously, I don't have all the answers. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers. It gives us what we need. It doesn't give us everything. But there is indication in Scripture that there will be no multiplication, no, no birth rate like we see and experience here in, in this expression, this fallen world that we live in. And in fact, Jesus is the one who's most clear about this, that there will be no husbands or wives, there'll be no being married like we know it today, no, no uh, giving birth to babies like we see today. In fact, no, no indication that there is going to be sex in heaven. And, and I said that to our young adult crowd, and I think some of them were reconsidering where, whether or not they wanted to go to heaven any longer. Uh, but, but, but just, you know, the, the, the picture is that it, it just will be so different. And in and, 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 and every indication that we'll know one another, love one another, dwell together, work together, serve together in perfected relationships of love, that's absolutely true. And in fact, if you're married, you know, husband and wife, that relationship will be beautiful. And, and all of the dysfunction and all the brokenness in our marriage, I believe, will be absolutely and finally healed and made wonderful. But it, it'll just be different. There's no multiplication. The birth rate, it, it doesn't increase. And so biologically, then that, that might actually answer some questions. Because some of you are like, well, that doesn't make sense. The mosquito population will go nuts if the frogs aren't there to eat them and the spiders aren't there to consume them. And then, you know, what will eat the frogs or else the frog population will go nuts. And, and it just doesn't work like that in eternity, okay? God's got a perfected ecosystem in mind, perfectly harmonious and balanced where all nature and geography and astronomy and biology will testify to the amazing glory of God. And I'll go on, I'll say all death and all corruption, all sin, all neglect, all destruction will be replaced with peace and love and compassion. Where you and I, we will have perfected desires and wills in which everything we desire, everything we pursue, everything that brings us pleasure will also bring honor and praise and glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In heaven, everything we desire will be a way to glorify God and bring enjoyment to others and ourselves. And bringing glory to God will be our perfect joy. You see, this is that perfected picture of heaven. We've said before that there is no heaven without God present. It's his house. It's his reign. And, and, and we get to be in, in this manifest presence of God. And that intimate relationship we have with him will enjoy forever. And most people believe in heaven, right? This is universally on planet Earth. It's like 95, 97% of all humans believe in the afterlife. And they believe all kinds of ways that we get to experience it. Some say the eightfold path, and some say the five pillars, and some say it's just you achieve cosmic consciousness, uh, sort of this ocean of, you know, mind. And, and, and even like legalistic Christians think it's all about the works that you do, the good things that you do. That, that'll help you earn your way in. And, and against all of this man-made religion, what we must do, th- there's this picture that God has already done everything required. That, that the, the entrance fee has already been paid. And, and that is Jesus himself. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross, the life that he lived, the death that he died, the fact that he resurrected, showing that he was God in the flesh, showing that he had accomplished the the payment for all of our sin and our, our shame, all the things that we do that make us guilty and that bring pain to other people. And, and Jesus paid the price on the cross for all of that. And so the invitation is on the table then. That heaven is not exclusively for a few, but, but the price that Jesus paid was a price for everyone who ever lived anywhere around the world. All we need do is accept his grace. God wants to restore all of the universe and all of humanity to himself. And in fact, the next fill-in is that in heaven, everyone is coming home. Everyone's coming home. You see, one of the realities of our fallenness in this world is that we don't feel at home. We don't feel at home in our own skin. We don't feel at home in our own family. We don't feel at home in our own homes or in our own nations. And we even say things like, you can't go home again. But the picture we get in Scripture is that Jesus is inviting all of us to be home with him. That when we're with him in heaven, when we're in that abundant, perfected reality, that we will be finally home in the home our hearts have been yearning for our entire lives. Last week, I read a passage from C.S. Lewis in the book, The Last Battle. It's It's his final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, and he actually describes heaven. He uses his imaginative description to talk about how good it's going to be. I just want to read you a passage that he writes in that book. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone's feeling. And yes, there are unicorns in this book. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. You know, at at memorials, I often get a chance to point out this reality, that the Bible is clear as Jesus followers that death is a homecoming. You know, as we talk about how we lose someone, 
how, how we love someone and then we lose them to death. And, and, and in one sense, that's an appropriate way to phrase things because we're looking at it from the pers- perspective of our grief. And in our love for that person, they, they are now gone. We, we don't have them anymore with us. And so from, from grief's perspective, there's a hole and, and it leaves a void. And so, yes, there's a loss that we experience. That's, that's appropriate. But in another sense, it's not appropriate to say that our, we've lost a loved one because by definition, something is only lost when you don't know where it is. And the Bible's very clear that for the Jesus follower, for the, for the one who loves God, that we know exactly where they are. They're home. They're home with the Lord. They're home for eternity. And the scripture says this in, in Isaiah 60. Verse 4, it says, look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. Your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy. That phrase, everyone is coming home, you might want to underline that. That's the great invitation, to dwell in the presence of our loving God with all of our loved ones, knowing that it is for everyone that God's love is big enough to invite and include everyone. In fact, in Revelation 21, 26, it says that the nations will bring their honor and glory into the city of God. And that's, this is what it means. It means, if you're filling in the blanks, that the nations will turn to God in eternity. In eternity, the picture we have is that all of the universe, that all of creation, that all of the nations will be reconciled to their creator. And this has always been the mission. The Apostle Paul talks about what Jesus accomplishes is the reconciliation of all things. And so in this case, all the nations of the world will know his glory and experience his beauty and grandeur. That verse there in Isaiah 60 says, They will honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, speaking to the city of Jerusalem, this this eternal city. For he has filled you with splendor. Those who despised you will kiss your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord and Zion of the Holy One of Israel. See, the movement of God, the mission of Jesus has always been that every square inch of humanity Every square inch of this universe would declare his glory and worship the only one worthy of our devotion and adoration and praise. And so right now, we have the opportunity to build our lives and to build our homes and our hearts as spaces where God is honored, as domains where Jesus is king. But in heaven, that's going to be every square inch of the universe. In Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul says this, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, that's why the church celebrates a beautiful tapestry of diversity now, because we're going to celebrate it for all of eternity. And I feel like I've been fortunate enough to get a glimpse of this, to praise Jesus and serve Jesus alongside brothers and sisters in Cape Town and Durban, South Africa, 
alongside brothers and sisters in Kitali, in Nairobi, Kenya, in New Delhi, India, in Pattaya, Thailand, and under a tree in Samoa. And just to see how beautiful it is when all brothers and sisters of all ethnicities, tribes, tongues, cultural backgrounds, praise and honor Jesus together. And it is to the glory of God. It is to the glory of God. But I don't want you to miss how good it's going to be for us, too. In fact, I'd love to just have you imagine this. Imagine the day, right, the moment where you enter into eternity. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if it's, it's when our lives on this earth end because we've passed away or because Jesus has returned. But, but I just want you to picture that you are entering into the gates of that new Jerusalem. You're walking into the vibrant, splendid, colorful city. It's just, it's just so beautiful. Your eyes can hardly handle it. It's dazzling. And it's filled with people. It's just relationally chocked full. All kinds of loved ones, hundreds of thousands of millions gathered together at the gates. And they're cheering. As you walk in, they're cheering. And it seems like their cheering is directed at you. And it's confusing to you. You're like, well, you look, turn around. Do you see, you think you're walking in in front of Billy Graham or somebody like that. You're like, oh, is it Mother Teresa? around? You know, and, and no, you realize they're, they're actually chanting your name. You actually can now start seeing the banners that they're dropping. They have your name on. They're celebrating you. They know you. And just about the time that all sinks in, you feel a couple of hands on your shoulders, and you find yourself looking face to face with Jesus himself. And he looks right into your eyes, and he looks right into your soul, and you know he knows everything about you. You know he... He sees every, everything you were tempted by. He sees every time you struggled, every time you stumbled. He sees every tear you cried, every heartbreak you experienced. He sees, he sees every trial that you had to endure, everything you had to overcome. And he also sees your heart and how you loved and how you cared and how you served he puts his hands on, on your shoulders, and he looks you in the eye, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Can there be any more reward than that? And yet the Bible indicates that there, there will be. There will be reward. There, there is even more than that that the Bible promises us in terms of how we receive from a God who loves to give. If you're filling in the blanks, the next one is that we will be rewarded in eternity. And the Bible talks about this as a form of motivation for the Jesus follower, that we receive the grace and the love and the care of God our Father right now, and then we put it on display for others right now. We actually employ that into our lives. We, we release that for the gifts of other people. And the Bible says when we do that, we will receive rewards from our Lord and our Savior. Revelation 19 paints this picture this way. It says, let us be glad and rejoice. Let's give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. 
Now, if you're just new to this whole kind of conversation of church and, and following Jesus, where it says the bride, it's actually referring to the church. The church is known as the bride of Christ. And so it's talking about the church, the people who follow Jesus. Now, look at this. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. And then look at this next line. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Could you circle the word good deeds? Good deeds. Now, how is the bride going to be dressed in fine linen? Who's weaving the linen? Who's preparing the linen? We are. And how are we preparing the wedding gown of the bride? It's, it's by our good deeds. It's by the good things that we do, the way that we care, the way that we serve, the way that we place others before ourselves. That's how we clothe the bride. In Revelation 14, 13, it says that our righteous deeds will follow us into heaven. And a couple of places in the New Testament, we're told that everyone stands before the judgment seat of Jesus. Everyone stands before the judgment seat. And, and for those whose names are written in the book of life, for those who love Jesus, who, who want to accept Jesus and receive the gift of grace that he gives, their names are written in the book of life. So they don't stand in front of the judgment, right, where he's separating the sheep and the goats. No, the, the, those that are written in the book of life stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. And the purpose of that is so that we can give an account of our lives. So, so that we can actually give an account. It says the Bible's going to hold us accountable. And so the scripture says this. The apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. And, and I do want to just remind us that, that for the believer, this is a judgment of our works. It's not a judgment of our faith. That Jesus wants to reward us for the good things that we've done. Have we squandered our time or have we spent it well? Have we glorified Jesus or have we tried to glorify ourselves? Like all of these things, these, we're going to give an account for this. And then it's also understandable that God knows about our motives as well. He knows about our intentions. He knows about the things that we tried to do but maybe couldn't pull off. Those count, right? So he, he just knows everything about you. He's the perfect, compassionate judge. But Jesus also indicates that because he knows our motives, he can see if we do things now for our own glory. He says several times in his earthly ministry, look, when you do a kind act so that other people will think how great you are, or you give a lot of money so that other people will think, oh, how generous they are. Jesus says, look, when you do it to be seen and to receive the accolades of other people, Jesus says, you have received your reward in full. Right? So he's saying there, there is this reward that should be motivational, but friends, let's let Jesus reward us. Does that make sense? Instead of trying to get the reward now, let's let Jesus reward us. And the whole emphasis here has to do with giving an account to the Lord, being accountable, which means this. It's, it's this next villain. What we do in this life matters in eternity. Our actions in this life have echoes in eternity. I think that's a line from uh, Gladiator, right? That the, the, what we do now, it matters, it counts. There's, there's a weight to it. And so we want to make sure that we live our lives intentionally with this in mind. The theologian N.T. Wright says this in a book he wrote called Surprised by Hope. He says, the point of the resurrection 
is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. No, what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. The point is, it matters. It all matters. And so we ought to go about our lives treating every aspect of it as an opportunity to demonstrate the signs of the kingdom of God to come. We can choose to live our lives in such a way that we reveal God's kingdom, that we broadcast God's love, that we herald its arrival. And and I do want to say, you might not see the results of your good efforts now. It, it's very common that we might, we might pray for people and, and not see the end results of those prayers for years. It's very true that we might invite others to come with us to church or to in, in, engage in some spiritual conversation or can I share about God's love with you? And, and we might not see the, the results of those things. For sure, if you're a parent, you just need to know that there are years of preparing meals and changing diapers and, and caring for, for your young children in their infancy, and, and you, know, you might not ever see the result of all of that foundational love and care. But the point I'm trying to make is that even if you don't see the results, God sees your efforts. God sees your work. God sees your heart, and it's not in vain. Nothing that we do is in vain. See, what Jesus says is this. He says, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. You see, Jesus is, he's watching. He's watching. He's keeping track because he wants to reward each and every one of us for the acts of kindness, for the acts of service, for the acts of grace, even as small as a cup of cold water offered to the thirsty, Jesus says, that is reward worthy. God sees. And of course, this brings us to the kind of what the whole message has been about, is that stewarding our time and our resources and all of nature, our domains, this is what gives us a glimpse of heaven today. The Apostle Paul writes this, and, and as we look at this, I wanted to stand the, the, the screens for a moment, and I want you just to focus on this verse for a moment. There are several words that I would love it if you would circle, because I'd, I want them to weigh on you a bit. I want you to walk in this truth this week. Paul writes this, and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. The first word I want you to circle is the word prize. Prize, because it is, it is the assurance of reward. And Overlake, I just want to say to you, I, I love you. And I want you to be richly rewarded on the day of his return. 
I, I celebrate the journey that we're on. I see so many of the good things that God is accomplishing in and through our lives. I want us to receive a prize. And then that next word, just a few words later, it's not just a prize, it's a crown. And crown communicates some things very clearly. Crown, of course, communicates a prize. It communicates reward. But it also communicates that abundance that we just started the conversation with, the, the, the wealth of eternity that is offered, right? It's not just a prize. It's a crown, and it's wealth, and it's abundance. But a crown also signifies reigning. And we will reign with Christ for eternity. Bible's clear about that, that there will be responsibility. There'll be other tasks that will be given. It'll be the task of reigning with Jesus for eternity. And then the, the last word I want you to circle, it's the word all, where Paul says the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. You see, this prize, this crown, it's not just for the apostle Paul. And it's not just for the disciples. It's not just for Bible heroes. It is for you and it is for me. It's for all who eagerly look forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. And that's really where we want to close our time. Because, friends, we've said it before and we're going to say it again. Jesus himself is the great prize. He's the prize in this life. He's the prize for eternity. There is no heaven without Jesus. You know, I, I, a lot of people, they, they try to construct a heaven in their minds. It's just whatever they want. It's just, it's just kind of their thoughts, what they want, their desires. But, but they leave God out of the picture. We can't do that because Jesus is central to this picture. It's his house. We're going to bump into him in the hallways, right? So we need, to, we need to make sure that we orient our lives in such a way that Jesus himself is the great prize, that we live prizing our intimacy with him today, that we live trying to honor him, trying to glorify him, trying to receive his love and then share his love with one another. And that really is what this, this whole thing, you, you think about what are, what are the implications of talking about heaven for three weeks? What, what is it that we should now do? How ought we live and the Apostle Paul answers that question in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, whether we are here in this body, in other words, we're, we're in this life, or we're away from this body. In other words, our life here is over. Our goal is to please him. Our goal is to please him. Because he is the great prize in this lifetime and forever. Over like we spent three weeks kind of going after this, and there's actually so much more we can talk about. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to post some stuff on Facebook. I've already been posting. I'll post some more on reigning with Christ and some of the thoughts that the Bible has about what that might look like. There's, there's so much. The more you get into this, the more you realize that God wants us to be thinking about the future he has planned for us. He wants this to be powerful and motivational for us in our day-to-day -day life, fuel for us to live what he's calling us to live. But I also want you to know this, that no matter how good we've been talking about these concepts that are good and compelling and attractive and exciting, and, and just know that no matter how good we might be able to imagine heaven being, it's going to be better still. It's going to be so, so good. I can't wait to be there with you. Not yet, but I, I, can't, I can't wait. All right. So why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's thank Jesus. We do thank you.
Jesus. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you for how your grace really is the foundation of all of our lives, of all that we hope and dream for. It's your grace that provides that. And so we say thank you for your grace. Thank you that you did pay the price on the cross, and we step into that reality now. All of us, if, if we're here for the very first time, we, we want to say yes to your love. But Lord, for the, for the Christ follower who's been following you for decades, we, we want to step into your love today as well. Say thank you for your grace. Thank you for inviting us into eternity. Thank you for motivating us to live in such a way that we bring heaven here on earth, that we give people a glimpse of heaven today. Jesus, we know your heart. Your heart is a heart of love. And so we want to say thank you for your love. Show us how we embrace it, how we share it in this life. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen.